The Business on RT Radio 1 with AIB. We know that your focus is on your business. That's why ours is on supporting you. Well, after that account of the havoc wreaked on the streets of Middleton, we're moving on to one woman's story about designing new buildings to enhance how we live, work and learn. Almost four decades ago, Valerie Mulvan and Neil McCullough set up an architect- architectural practice, McCullough Mulvan, that went on to win awards and accolades for their groundbreaking work. And I'm joined now by Valerie Mulvan. You're very welcome to the programme, Valerie. Thank you. Now, you have been involved in designing all kinds of buildings from galleries to libraries to fire stations over many years. And I want to talk a bit about that process. But first, how early on in childhood did you decide that you wanted to be an architect? Gosh, I think it was, um, I I probably was about 12 or 13, but... um, I think there were a few kind of pointers on the way that that sort of led me there. We we lived in in Bray and uh, for then we lived in England for a while. And when we went to England, I had some friends, uh, one particular friend who just lived in a house. Her dad was in advertising. Her mum was an artist and their house was just like a, a wonderland. You went in and there were kind of big polished wooden floors. It was, it was a very suburban looking house, but inside it was amazing. So things like um, Japanese fish hanging out of the ceiling, paper fish, um, huge green plants, everything low, Japanese looking. Of course, I didn't even know what Japanese looking meant at that time. It was incredibly exotic. And I just thought, yeah, this is a way you could live. It just seemed like a different way of living to suburban carpets. But it's interesting that you, you pick up on that because rather than say I went to England and I saw a whole load of different kinds of buildings. You're actually talking about the colour and the texture and the imagination that went into the interior of someone's home and how they lived in that home. That's that's true, actually. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I suppose it was something and maybe as a young kid, you kind of look at things that you you feel affected by and you walk into a place and you feel affected by it. Um, I, I think it was something where it, it just seemed such a different response to ordinary things that you could change. And I suppose that was what interested me. And I got very interested in drawing, uh, interested in exploring things that way. Did you read about architecture and buildings and design as a teenager? Uh, and when I came back, when we came back to Ireland, then we lived near Dunleary and I used to go to the Carnegie Library there. So I haunted the architecture department there because they had some great books, quite exotic um, books, quite an eclectic set of books about uh, people like Kenzo Tange or uh, Le Corbusier or Walter Gropius. Um, Never heard of Frank Lloyd Wright because there just wasn't a book about him. But at the same time, I learned a lot about um, about buildings and about things that were extraordinary to me. And it just seemed like a way you could translate uh, ordinary living into a, a fantastic containment. Being. Dublin at that time was going through economic doldrums, you know, whether yes. it was the 70s, whether it was the 80s. Yes. A lot of derelict buildings. Was that something that you specifically recall or that sort of caught your eye at that yeah. time you were very yeah, it aware really, of? It really did. And um, I mean, as a teenager, Dublin seemed like a very dull place and the only thing you could do would be to go to the Dandelion Market or into the middle of town, you go in on the bus. But actually, I started to draw a lot of those derelict buildings because they really struck me as, um, not that we were living in a ruin, but I suppose there was the kind of, first of all, there was the picturesque aspect of them, but also the huge holes that there were in the city streets. That was very affecting. And it just, it, it left you thinking that there had to be ways of solving these things. You studied in 
architecture in UCD yes. and you met Neil in college. I did. Was, was that I a did. sort of a love at first sight <laughs> thing? Probably not quite, but I suppose the first thing I remember about him was noticing his hands because you're in a studio, you draw all the time. And if you're sitting looking at, 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 at various things or talking, people are actually with a pencil drawing on tracing paper. So I first noticed his hands and then it's quite... What did a, you notice about his hands? The beautiful long fingers and the way he held a pencil, incredibly delicate. And um, we, we all learn to draw through just... I practice. You just keep at it. You keep at it, keep at it. It's not about making an image of something, but it's about exploring. And, uh, you know, the crit system is quite bruising, but you learn a lot about the people that you're with very quickly. And he became clear to me he was a really bright, intelligent and very funny person. So So it started with the hands. It did, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And the two of you then, you know, started going out together and... You, you travelled, you, you went abroad to we Rome yeah, together. Yeah, we did. When we finished, we went to Rome um, on a, on a, for a year on a scholarship and we spent the year doing more drawing, um, exploring the city and it was a, it was a great uh, kind of so introduction. So you were both on a scholarship together yes, in yes, Rome? Yes, we were, yeah. Um, uh, we, we, we kind of just spent the time looking at Rome through the Nolly maps. It's an 1848 map, uh, sorry, a uh, 1748 map, which just literally takes the city in pieces. There are loads of pages to this map. And if you explored each one, if you put them all together, it makes a map of the city. But each one describes a little district. So we kind of went around all of these and you'd sit on one pile of stones and draw another pile of stones and really understand how it began to layer up on top of each other. And Rome is such a fantastic city for that. You could spend your life there just learning what's happening under the ground in front of you, um, how, how things how things build on each other and how each thing that comes on top of something else really affects what, what is happening now. And that's, that's a huge thing. I think that's helped me all my life, actually. So from the uh, joys of looking at maps and swanning yes. around Rome and looking at different parts of it. Work. <laughs> back Back to cloudy, rainy Ireland. Yes. And it's pretty grim. And it was the 1980s. 80s, yeah. And yeah. no job. There was no work whatsoever. For wrote, either of We you. wrote loads of letters to all the practices, just loads of no's coming back. And we'd spent some time talking to uh, Aldo Rossi, who was a very famous and influential architect who was interested in the city and how did we use cities. Um, We tried to get a job with him in Italy before we came back. But um, he was talking about work his students had done recording vernacular buildings in Switzerland, in Ticino. And we kind of thought, golly, that would be an amazing thing to do in Ireland. So when there were no jobs available, when nothing was going on, we thought, well, why don't we just start into that? Why do we make a, a whole series of investigations? And that became a book called A Lost Tradition. Um, it took us a good few years to get it published. And in the meantime, then we'd set up a practice. So, so what, what, what kinds of things did you deal with in the book? What was in it? Um, it was kind of, a, if you like, a typological study. So we would say, OK, there would be, like you'd look at, at monastic buildings and you'd see that there was a huge pattern to them all. They all have similarities. And that is what I would describe as topology. In other words, it's a type that there is variations of. And that itself is really interesting. And if you then, we, we kind of went through the entire chronology of history, finding things like, say, tower houses or um, and fortified houses. And that was about houses. drawing a line connecting the dots yes, through an Irish tradition exactly, and identifying exactly, things along yeah, the way. That's right. But that's do right. they not all look the same because there were probably only a handful of 
you know, abbey or monastery designers operating in Ireland at that time. No, it comes down no, to a few don't. individuals. Um, well, it probably does, but you don't know their identities, particularly if you look at, at monasteries, if you look at all the, like they're going tiny, tiny things up to quite big things. So the differences between, say, uh, a monastery in County Mayo is quite different to a monastery in Kilkenny. If you look at, say, Kells Priory or a Thassel or one of those huge, huge priories, you see them as huge, um, I, I suppose, examples of, of mini cities, whereas there are tiny ones on the west, uh, which are just like a group of people trying to find a place to live that's creating and, a small space. And if you had them. to look back on that, mm. was there a common thread? Was there an Irish style or Irish oh, there is. tradition oh, there totally is. Yeah. yeah, there is. And it's about scarcity. It's about scarce resources, about what's available. It's about trying to, um, you know, forge something out of the land that's there. Um, so the stone is very particular. The the districts are very particular. There's different, um, uh, different types of traditions, east and west, north and south. And you pick up all of those just by, I suppose that's why topology is so interesting. So it was making something beautiful out of the land of scarcity instead of the land of plenty. Exactly. Did you make any money out of the book? Uh, No. (laughs) But it wasn't about that. As in none or not very much? None because... It wasn't uh, a stocking filler, was it? Oh, it it? certainly wasn't. I mean, it wasn't that it was expensive but it was something that I suppose not too many people would have been madly interested in at the time. But it it was a book that became very popular and lots of students still talk about it and wonder is it going to be republished, which would be nice to do. Um, We got an Arts Council grant to actually get it published, which was brilliant. And that made all the difference. That made it come out. So yourself and Neil then, you had to find, you had done the book, a bit of a labour of love really in many ways and something to do because you didn't have a job. You decided to set up a practice together. We did. Were you married at this stage? No. No, we weren't. Um, although we were living together for a long time, but I suppose we, we, we you know, you you work on things. You 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 try little pieces of, of of work. Little, you know, people say to you, "Will you look at this extension for me? Would you do this for me? Would you do that?" Um, and we we really, I suppose, one of the things where we were always very interested in the arts and arts generally. So we would have hung around with lots of people who did that kind of thing. And I suppose one of the things that was a bit of a breakthrough for us was meeting people who were the City Arts Centre and they were living or occupying a building uh, which was the NCAD uh, before them at Moss Street and City Quay. And they wanted to do work on that. So that was one of the big things that we took on first. Incredibly exciting to have these um, very disparate group of people interested in creating theatre, art exhibitions, gallery, the lot. It was fantastic. And it's one thing to have ideas and skills and to set up together a firm, but it is a business. It is. Were were you kind of, were you any good at the business side of things? (laughs) Was Neil Um, good at that? Were you good at that? I suppose, you know, you kind of you make do, you manage. And actually, the main way that any architects usually set up a practice is by having some time teaching. And teaching in the School of Architecture is something that propels a lot of us into practice. And it's a great, wonderful thing. And and students are always interested in what you're doing. You're always interested in what they're doing. There's a great exchange of views and ideas. And hopefully you're helping them on their way as well. Doesn't sound like you enjoyed the VAT returns, <laughs> Valerie. No, no, I, I, I don't like any of that kind of thing. But, you know, has to be done. Gets what, ab- done. what about working with Neil, the two of you together? Yes. Was that 
in any way a strain on the relationship? Were there creative differences there roused? Lots of creative differences. We'd work from things from a different point of view sometimes. Like he would start with a solid and kind of carve away. I would start with layering up things and we'd kind of come to a point. Sometimes we would have big rows about things and you'd resolve them maybe by, you know, demonstration, like through uh, like a drawing or a model. You know, you pick up a bit of paper and you fold it into a shape and you say, that's why we want to do that. And the other person might say, OK, I get that. And, this sounds you know, like a very different way to have a row with your partner, <laughs> drawing pictures. <laughs> well, you could put it like that, but it's uh, it was it was a good way to work, actually. It was a great way to work. We really enjoyed that. And one, the business took off and you started doing more and more stuff. I mean, yes. among the buildings that you would have done, Temple Bar Gallery. Correct, yeah. In Trinity, right. the Long Room Hub, the Usher yeah. Library. Yeah. You did uh, a library in Waterford, a fire station in Waterford. Fire station, yeah, that was a great building. That was a real piece of constructed landscape, actually, because it was out at the edge. And a lot of the things that we do are about new things and old things, but this was completely new build on the edge of the city. And so we, we were trying to think about how do you make something like that? How do you make an enclosure? How do you make something where you, 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 you want to create some place where people can grow and work and, and get on with things? So we made something that was like a mountain. And it was kind of like a mountain range that started low and got higher. And we tucked in all the pieces underneath it. And it was it was terrific. We had wonderful, wonderful clients on that job. Really great um, man called Niall Curtin is the fire officer there. Now, Neil got cancer. He did. And he did. You he passed. You lost him in 2021. Yeah. And for anyone, that's a very, very difficult thing to face. Also, together as your as work partners as well as yeah. life partners. It was, it was catastrophic, actually. It really was. And, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things. It's a kind of a when when he got that diagnosis, we got it. We both together were there when he got this diagnosis and we, we were just stunned because we couldn't believe something like that could happen. And had he been unwell for well, long? Well, not not no. It was this is a very this is a very particular cancer. It's a very silent one. It's one that is very hard to spot. And um, really, it was a complete and utter shock. Um, and we, I, I suppose it's fair to say that after the initial shock, we got into the thing of thinking, right, we got a way, a way out of this. We're going to work through it. It will work out. He will get better somehow. We thought that that would happen. We thought that between uh, surgery and chemotherapy and radiotherapy and all these various things, that there would be a way found to make it work. And he managed really well. He was incredibly stoic. He worked most of the way through and um, it was a great solace to him to be able to work and be normal. He hated the idea of being sick. How did you manage during those years? Well, um, in the same way, we kind of tried to slow down time. We tried to enjoy every minute, not get too kind of trying not to get too head up about things. Um, COVID was a bit difficult because obviously it slowed things down a lot. It made it, you know, you worried about whether treatments were coming as quick as they might. And really, you know, anybody will tell you who's been through this, the staff in, in hospitals are magnificent and they are really just such a such a great help. You mentioned about enjoying every minute. Yes. You used to love the two of you going away on did, yes. interesting yes. foreign trips. And, yes. and one, of the, one of the final trips that you had together, you went to Greece. We did. We went to Greece and uh, we went out on ferries and we went round to islands. And um, great things about our holidays was always new things and old things. And this was really old things, mainly little tiny Byzantine churches, um, you know, beautiful landscapes, swimming, 
Byzantine churches are kind of like Irish monasteries, actually. They're all tiny, replicated little things that create spaces between them. And incredibly beautiful, wonderful kind of amenities, wonderful light. And it's just those kinds of things are, are hugely important. And then doing things like going to the museum in Athens, where you stand and you look at the Acropolis. And there's a big space left in the Acropolis for the Elgin marbles to come back to them. Um, it's very poignant. Um, but all of those things, all the layering and the... Um, was that the, very emotional at the time? Uh, I think it was, actually. Yes, it was. Um, but it was also very joyful. You know, we felt... And at that point, you know, it was a good nearly two years before he actually died. We didn't know he was going to die when he did. And we just kept pushing to enjoy things as much as we possibly could and to keep on working, doing the things we loved. And with both of you continuing work, but also then with COVID coming yes. along, maybe that affected thing people mightn't have realised that he was yeah, unwell. Yeah, you're right. And in fact, I think he really liked that because he hated the thought that somebody might look at him through the lens of illness. So he just wanted to behave completely normally. So when he did actually die, it was a huge shock to a lot of people because they didn't even know he'd been sick. It was really our families, some very close friends and some very close colleagues in the office who knew. You're incredibly strong about it, Valerie. I'm not really. I I, I regularly will go home and, <laughs> and collapse. And um, I, I think actually the thing that's kept me going is being able to continue the things we did and to work. I have wonderful colleagues in the office. They're incredibly supportive. We all work very collaboratively. When it comes to work, do you try and second guess what yes. Neil might have yes, of course. done in this or yeah. done in that? Yeah. And how he would have been wrong if he had of. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, you'd look at, at what he was uh, at, at uh, a way of doing things. And sometimes we'd kind of look at each other and say, what would Neil think of that? And they say, nah, nah, he would never go for that. So then you start again, throw it all out and start again. Do you so ever it's kind of an instinct. Do you ever talk to him? I talk to him all the time, most days, most times. Um, yeah, it's a continuous conversation. It really is. And um, I, I, I was talking to one of your researchers saying that I just finished working on his book. He was nearly finished a book when he died. We were working on it right up to the time he did die. Literally a week beforehand, we would have had all kinds of photographs spread out on the floor. He had the essays written and it was a matter of how did it all go together. And so I understood the bones of it. And, um, and you're finished. You are working on that book. I've just finished have, it. Finished it's literally it. just gone to the printers. So it should be out in the next few weeks. So you knew where he wanted to go with something. You understood yes. each other that way. Yes, uh, very much so. I did. And uh, I did know the way he thought about things. I knew about the way he looked at things, uh, you know, his view of things. He, We've been writing and, and working and putting photographs and drawings and so on together for so many years. You kind of have a good sense of it. I mightn't have got it totally right, but I think it's close. I hope anyway. We're getting lots of texts in. One here, John and Drumcondra says, pass on my sincere appreciation of Neil's work, an incredible oh. legacy. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And uh, I, I know I read there at one stage, Dublin City architect Ali Grehan said that your partnership has gifted Dublin fine buildings and helped people to understand Dublin City and what it can be. That's quite a legacy, isn't it? Well, that's a wonderful thing to say and so generous of her. I, I think the thing that you want as an architect is to kind of enrich people's lives and to solve problems. And if you can keep doing that, we are happy. That is really what makes an architect happy. In general, when it comes to Ireland and let's say our cities in particular, mm. I'm thinking mm. about Dublin, but any of, any of the cities, Cork, Limerick, Galway, Kilkenny, Waterford, um, 
are we are we still making mistakes? Do you think in terms? Of how we, yeah, I how think we I, I think the biggest thing we're doing is not living in those places. They are fantastic environments. They're actually instant environments. When you're building new things, you're constantly thinking about what people call placemaking. And if you work in a, a small town or in a city, that's all there. It's already a place. And there are so many vacant upper floors. There are so many derelict sites still. It's amazing, but there really are. There's something like between 50 and 90,000 uh, units of housing potentially that are still there waiting to be just used. And that's something that needs a bit of a shift of mindset, I think. And a little bit later, we're going to be talking to Matt Cooper, whose new book and who really owns Ireland deals with some of those issues as well about tackling vacant property. So we'll be examining it in a bit more detail. But uh, another text in, what a visionary woman with such inspiring ideas, Valerie. A lot of very, very nice God, text coming really in nice. about what you've that's done. That's really nice. I, I, w- I would love to think that, that anything that any of us did in, in the office was inspiring and helpful to people. We had a great time last weekend at Open House where we try and show some of the buildings we've been working on. And the thing that's so inspiring is the number of people who love architecture. They're so interested in it. It's a brilliant way to, um, you know, introduce people and get them to think about things differently. Valerie, I really wish you all the best. It's been an absolute pleasure. Valerie Mulvin, architect, thank you very much for joining us on the programme.